You're listening to the Verse Podcast. Hi everyone, thank you for coming. Um, I'm super excited to be here and speaking to Juno and Molly about their book, which has been just received with so much love since it launched. It's been amazing to see sex workers feeling so joyous at having written something by other sex workers that is amazing. We have so much written about us that's terrible by non-sex workers and this has just been incredibly welcome. Um, I'm not sure if anyone said yet but if you are taking pictures um, and you share them on social media can you cover our faces please. Um, and we'll use an emoji. Use an emoji, hide it with the corner of the book um, and after the talk there will be book signing over there. I'm going to chat for about 45 minutes and then there'll be time for you to ask questions so think of some good things to ask. Um, okay, so I'm just going to start this short quote from your book. You say that sex work is the vault in which society stores some of its keenest fears and anxieties. So I'd just like you to talk a bit about how we've come to this place where sex work is seen as so different from every other type of work and as such a problematic thing in the world. Mm, well, I remember when we, when we were writing the second chapter of the book, which is the one that um, focuses on sex. There's a chapter on sex and there's a chapter on work. And um, I had to do some really deep delving, didn't I, in the archives of the Daily Mail website, um, like looking at the way sex work's been discussed in the last you know, few decades and then in the last like, few millennia. And it was a really, really difficult um, process, wasn't it? All of the horrible stuff we turned up. Yeah. Um, and so much of it is... Um, kind of present in the sex work debate, but in a really subterranean way. Um, Ideas that we have about sex workers as being, you know, disgusting or frivolous or, um, you know, unintelligent or uh, cunning or dangerous. They're all, like, quite archaic ideas and they have, like, long roots, but they they do, they pop up, don't they? Yes. And we see them even, like, in feminist conversations these ideas kind of like rise up, um, especially the idea that sex workers are too frivolous and too um, unintelligent to take part in political discussion, or that we're um, only really out to look after the interests of men. Yeah, um, I think if at the beginning of the book writing process um, someone had said to us that chapter one would be about sex, we would both have been quite surprised because <laughs> I think a lot of our activism um, and kind of political work in lots of ways is about trying or has been about trying to get people to think less about the sex of sex work and a bit more about the work of sex work. Um, But yeah, as Juno says, it was really kind of fascinating, um, both kind of having the time and the space um, that like writing the book afforded us to, um, yeah, think what it is about the sex of sex work that makes people so uncomfortable and that brings up um, yeah, so much, um, so much kind of disgust and misogyny, basically. And it really interrupts the discussion about work that we that we so badly want to have. You know? And how do you think it ties in with that discussion about work? Because obviously, um, one of the big arguments you hear from castle feminists is that it can't be work; it's too awful to possibly be work. Um, and what do you think about that? I think, I think um, there are a lot of people for whom uh, it makes absolutely 
perfect sense that work can be shitty and horrible and still be work. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think there is, equally there's also a, a, a section of society for whom the idea that work should be pleasurable and enjoyable, fulfilling, meaningful, um, makes complete sense and any other, anything else would seem strange. And the dialogue between these two groups is very frustrating sometimes. Work, work is still work if it's bad. Um, that's right. one of the takeaways of the whole book, in fact. Right. And like, I guess also the point of saying that isn't just to like, all feel sad about that together, but because by all agreeing that work is mostly shit, um, we can like, collectively struggle against it and transform the conditions in which it happens and ultimately, I guess, transform you know, everything about work. Yeah. Um, and that's what's powerful about you know, anti-work politics, basically. So in that way, talking about sex work is quite a useful way to look at other forms of work because it's so often denied as a form of labour. Yeah, and at the same time, though, conversations about other, other kinds of workers' rights don't often include so much emphasis on the need to enjoy it. You know, like, there's this real sense, even amongst anti-prostitution feminists, that sex workers should be enjoying their work. And the reason that it's not really work is that it's so unpleasant or it's criminalised and difficult to do. And it, the, the answer to that, it really annoys me. I want to kind of, like, yell when I see this argument because the whole point of having a discussion about workers' rights is that for some workers, their conditions are inadequate and they want to struggle against them. Like, the sex worker rights movement isn't here for us all to just reflect on how wonderful it is and how fun and enjoyable, even if that's been the case for some advocates some of the time. <laughs> Do you think that um, the type of, I hate calling them feminists, but the type of feminists, the caste of feminists, as we call them, um, who use that as an argument, do you think that there's something deliberate about that, that they keep forcing it on you, that this is your argument, you're saying that work is fun, you're saying that it's good work? Is that, is that useful for them in some way to keep doing that, even though when it's very obviously not what's being said? Yeah, I think so. I think like conversations about sex work within feminism are really characterised by a series of kind of quite knowing distortions um, and like hopefully one of the things our book will contribute towards doing is like making it you know even more clear how much of a caricature it is when kind of castoral feminists or anti-prostitution feminists um, kind of want to say that the sex worker rights movement is uh, about empowerment, it's about choice, it's about saying that sex work is all good, it's all fun, and like you know um, that's kind of largely already a kind of misogynist caricature based on. Um, people who have louder voices than sex workers being confident that people aren't really going to look that closely into what prostitutes are actually saying. Um, but yeah, I think um, I think it is useful for like I think yeah I mean of, of course like misrepresenting someone else's politics is always useful mm. for the person who is doing the misrepresentation right like it forces sex workers to waste time. Um, you know, defending themselves yeah. against that. But it's also important, though, to say that there have been times when sex workers have advocated for their rights, or at least their right to take up space in the feminist discussion, by saying, actually, our work is fine, and we're not doing any harm, and we're having fun, and it's enjoyable, so let us be. And that, we've talked about in the book, we've critiqued that um, mode of argument. Um, 
because for us it's not a helpful place to begin the discussion about workers' rights, but also it's understandable to see why somebody would do that. If, if you've got you know, the second wave movement uh, a few decades ago you know, spending a lot of their energy saying how disgusting an industry is and how horrible it is and how all of the women are victims and they all need to be rescued, some people's response to that has naturally been to say, actually, it's not as bad as that. You know, we should be allowed to exist because it's, it's fun. You know, like it's an understandable argument, but one that needs like to be critiqued and carefully thought through. Definitely. Um, this chair is like rocking. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the whole, your whole book is an argument against carceral feminism. Um, and I wanted to just quickly say something about that term here, that um, in your book you talk about the term abolitionist, which is what this type of feminist love to call themselves, and you point out that it's really problematic, given that a lot of these women are white, they like to compare the sex industry to slavery, and they've kind of co-opted the term abolitionist. Um, it's problematic in another way, in that a lot of people who call for decrim would ultimately like to see the industry gone. You know, the English Collective of Prostitutes um, make a point of saying they're for prostitutes against prostitution. Um, so not using that term, using the term carceral, feminist because um, what this group share in common is that they all advocate, pretty much all advocate for the Nordic model, which brings in another layer of criminalisation. Um, so I'm just wondering what you think about how we've got to this place of huge toxicity and kind of short-sightedness in feminism, that this is the default position for people who we would like to think of as our allies, for like left-wing feminists, MPs, how have we ended up here? Yeah, I mean, it's really painful, right? I feel like conversations about um, sex work within feminism um, are often characterised by women saying absolutely appalling things to each other. Um, and, you know, like, sex workers also have a role in that, although I don't think that sex workers have the same kind of power as a kind of institutional... Um, feminisms that they're arguing against. Um, I think, again, like one of the things that was really kind of interesting to me about the process of writing the book was like the opportunity to empathise um, more carefully with strands of feminism that we both disagree with. Um, and I think that, like, yeah, I think that was useful and has made our politics kind of um, stronger in lots of ways. Like, I think... Um, you know, we, we felt that carceral feminism in many ways is making, is identifying a problem correctly, which is that the sex industry is a site of patriarchy and misogyny um, and white supremacy and, like, all the harm that is associated with capitalism. And they're totally correct in, in that diagnosis. Um, it's just that you can't solve that problem with more police and more border police. Um, and then conversely, like, liberal feminism, which, again, we're obviously quite critical of in the book in terms of its, like, I guess, like, um, in unthought-out attitude towards sex and capitalism, um, you know, again, is identifying a real problem, which is that, like, prostitute women are stigmatised um, in many ways because we're seen as having the wrong kind of sex. Uh, and that, again, is like a real problem. It's just that the solution, which is just to say that, well, sex, sex is good, actually. Sex is, like, uncomplicatedly unproblematic all the time. 
uh, is all, and along with capitalism, which is also like fine, at least not really worth discussing, <laughs> um, you know, that's also inadequate. And I think, um, it, yeah, it was useful for both of us to kind of empathise with where those that kind of thinking um, comes from. Yeah, I mean, that's the only way that we can ever really have a dialogue. And, you know, I, I feel like we don't want a politics of compromise between these, like, two poles, because that's just going to get us nowhere. But there does need to be more of a dialectic between, mm. between feminisms. Um, and in our book, we have tried to critique our movement, which is something that we haven't seen very much of in, like the broader realm of anti-prostitution politics. You know, there's, there's not much self-critique. And we're hoping that people can see that if you're prepared to be reflective about the history of your own movement, then, you know, we're in good faith wanting to have a conversation that actually goes somewhere rather than just this constant, you know, this, the same sex war paradigm that we've inherited from, you know, our forebears. And it just goes nowhere and it's really painful. And everybody kind of... Some people, I think, enjoy the drama, I should say. Like, I feel like there are people out there who want the sex war paradigm to never end because they're in, they enjoy the battlefield. Um, and maybe we should talk about that more as well, like what the kind of, I don't know, the conflict, how, how this kind of conflict can sometimes inform people's feminist identities, like who we're against, like who we're fighting against. Some sex workers like to refer to um, cultural feminists as antis, and there's a lot of like, lingo in, within each group about what the other group's beliefs are. And like, you know, for a few years I got really swept up in it and then I realised how exhausted I was and how much less exhausting it might be to just to write all the ideas in a book and <laughs> stop, stop looking at was Twitter. Was it that much less exhausting to write all the ideas no, in a book? No, no, It was a false economy of, of, of time and energy. But at least I wasn't looking so much at, um, you know, pointless arguments on Twitter, mm -hmm. which felt like it was draining so much of our energy. We had a, you had a friend, didn't you, tell, tell you that maybe it's best to take all the energy used for writing tweets, put it into a form like a book that is going to, you know, it's like physical manifestation of ideas that hopefully has some posterity to it, whereas the tweet archive, I've, I've deleted my tweet archive like three times. It's all gone. <laughs> Her idea was that if we wrote a book, we wouldn't have to make the same arguments again and again, which in the short term hasn't worked out <laughs> like that. <laughs> we keep having to like reconstitute the book in the interviews that we're doing to promote it. And each time I do like a more and more shitty job of rephrasing <laughs> our very complicated ideas into like a small format. I was like, this didn't work, did it? <laughs> How confident do you feel that you'll be able to get the aunties to listen. Do you think there's any, I mean, you're saying that you've managed to feel some sympathy for their analysis, if not their strategy for dealing with sex work? I kind of feel like at the end of the day, like this isn't a, a tale of two sides. This is a story of, you know, a marginalised people who want to talk about their experiences in the sex mm. industry and a largely non-prostitute group of, I mean, almost entire, a group entirely made up of people who don't currently do sex work, wanting to take part in that discussion as well. And I kind of feel like, well, we've written the book, they can, they can come and get it. Like, we don't yeah. need to go and like, push it under their noses and beg for them to engage. We could. <laughs> um, I just don't know that that would get us anywhere, and we didn't write the book for them, did no. we? No, which is good, because so far as I know, no one who actually disagrees with it has read it yet. We haven't... <laughs> <laughs> we, <laughs> we haven't had any negative feedback at all, which is maybe for the best. Um, yeah, I think... Uh, I hope that... Um, 
I don't think we, sh we should expect to make any major conversions, um, but I think uh, the idea might be that we could um, move liberal feminists towards a more radical leftist sex worker feminism. Yeah, um, but one in which they could actually proactively argue, you know, and advocate for sex worker rights rather than just kind of like adding their name to a petition or retweeting sex workers, but actually you know, be able to, for themselves, verbally articulate why it is that a raid on a brothel is an unjust, you know, non-solution to their rescue. Like, something that they themselves could... An argument they could have on Christmas Day. Because <laughs> sex workers can't do the entire thing by ourselves. Like, we need, we need other people to start yeah. recognising how this topic links up to, um, you know, uh, drug law reform and, and borders and... Um, you know, prison abolition, prison abolition, and all the other issues that people are interested in, um, and maybe have a slightly wobbly understanding of, which is understandable because it's really complicated. Yes. Like you know, it's sex work. The sex work discussion isn't just about like sex and morals and who's who's right and who's wrong. It's about like the tedium of thinking about like zoning laws and you know how um, particular. Um, policies actually affect sex workers in various different countries and why they don't work, even though it sounds on paper like they might work, you know. It's, it's certainly, like, almost intuitive to think that if clients are bad and violent people, that criminalising them might make it easier for a sex worker to kind of regain some power in that relationship. But you have to really kind of sit down and think about it through a sex worker's eyes to understand why that isn't good, why that doesn't help. Um, and hopefully parts of the book will help people do that. Yeah, I think one of the things about your book that's so great is that it goes really far beyond just talking about decrim, which is what a lot of UK sex worker rights has become <clears throat> very focused on. And, and obviously decrim isn't a solution to everything. There would be some people it wouldn't help, it would help barely at all. So um, did you really deliberately make sure that your book was very much widely focused? I mean, I think we wrestled with this a bit. Um, I think we felt anxious about being critical of decriminalisation um, for fear of disheartening people. Um, or, ha or handing, like, yeah. assistance to the people who would, like, the detractors who want to see that argument, you know, squashed. But in the end, I think... It was, I'm glad that we were, um, partly because it feels intellectually honest, because as you say, like, if we got decrim in the it's very UK... very highfalutin. Tomorrow, <laughs> intellectually honest. I mean, it's true. I don't think we could have defended it as the solution to everything, yeah. um, because for lots of people, it's not. I mean, it would help, but it's not... Um, some people, yeah, some people it wouldn't even help that much, to be honest. Um, which isn't to say that it's not important. It's one part of the jigsaw puzzle, and all the parts are really important. So, like, not only decriminalisation, but also ending poverty, also ending the war on drugs, also um, dismantling borders. Um, you know, all of those things have to, you know, have to be have to come together um, f in order to like br bring about justice for people who are selling sex. We were worried that the end of the book would be slightly anticlimactic when we laid this out. It was essentially like, ah, you thought we were going to give you a solution and there isn't really a quick solution. It's just going to be like, you know, more work and more work and more work after that. Um, but far better to start on that journey with like a, a deep understanding of yeah. where you're going, at least. 
hopefully. Right, and also like the prostitution debate is absolutely plagued with people um, making like claims that XYZ law will be a total silver bullet and um, it'll fix all the problems instantly. Yes, mm. yeah, there's a great line in um, uh, Julie Bindle's most recent book um, where she interviews... I haven't checked if she's here. <laughs> <laughs> she interviews a... Um, anti-prostitution feminist in Canada, and the woman says to her something like, you know, I'm so sick of fighting patriarchy here in Canada. I wish I could just go to Sweden where they've fixed it all, haven't they? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, even, even if you think that Sweden's got it right on prostitution law, which obviously we don't, uh, I think it would be a bit of a stretch to think that Sweden has ended patriarchy. <laughs> um, it's like this magical thinking. But sex workers do it too. Like, I see the same kind of logic when people are like, we need decrim, you know, it's like, and obviously ideas are quite, they get boiled down into these simplistic slogans because they have to, because people are trying to get their message across very quickly. So it was like having an entire book and having an entire chapter to talk about decrim felt like incredibly luxurious when we're so used to kind yes. of trying to make our case like desperately in a lobbying meeting. Yes. Um, where you have to strip a very complex argument of all of its Nuance yes. down to its barest bones, and you always feel like you're doing a disservice to quite a lot of your politics. When Absolutely, you do that. going to a media training where you're like taught how to make the case in 90 seconds or less. Yeah, <laughs> you have to leave quite a lot out compared to a chapter in a book. Yeah. <sighs> yeah, there was a paragraph that really struck me where you were talking about this, about how um, the things that we need to make people safer, which would ultimately mean less people in the sex industry, are like at once seems so huge and impossible and I'm also really simple I'll just read that out if I can no, find I it okay so you were talking about two sex workers who were killed in the UK um, in the last few years and you say so women like Daria and Paula need so little some basic safety and resources and, it, and it's easy to imagine society meeting those needs yet at the same time they needed so much in that to imagine a society that takes their safety seriously is to imagine a society profoundly transformed so it's like these things should be so simple but but they're not and how how what sort of hope do you feel and what was the energy that you felt when you finished apart from exhausted when you finished <laughs> writing your book yeah. um, that's a good question I think I mean, to, to speak to what you said about, um, you know, these things feeling like so small and so achievable, but at the same time so radical, mm. it makes me think of, you know, people's responses to things like um, uh, safe injection sites, you know, places where people can inject uh, drugs in a safe environment with clean needles, um, with assistance if they need it, is um, a very small achievable thing that really gets people, like, you know, in a really deep place. It really, like, challenges a lot of their ideas about, you know, what kind of safety is important, like, whose safety really matters. Like, do people need to be safe from drug dealers and drug users in public spaces? Is that the safety that they always wanted? Because when you present what really matters, which is the safety of the drug user in that injection facility, it really it forces people to examine whose interests they were really thinking about in the first place. And I think the idea of sex workers truly having their needs met in society would really challenge a lot of people's mm. comfort levels. You know, it would mean that there was a visible area in various districts where people were selling sex on the street um, and being not just tolerated but accepted as part of a community. Um, it would mean 
it would mean all kinds of things. And I, I, think, I think maybe people, when it comes to sex work and some other topics like drugs and like, you know, food and the obesity debate, lots of people are really not examining what their own emotions are, the, the role that their emotions are playing in those discussions, I think. That's what makes that kind of like, these things are so simple, but they're also so massive. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this just before we um, came on, and um, that that extract that you read out, um, obviously Paula's story is very largely about drug use in lots of ways. Um, and I remember when we were writing the book, uh, Juno doing a search, I think of the Guardian websites, um, looking for uh, the words prostitution and prescription heroin together. Um, and finding almost nothing, like literally like two instances or something, compared to if you put prostitution into the Guardian website, you come up with tens of thousands of, of hits. Um, and similarly, like dismal results, talking about prostitution and things like universal credit or um, you know other key factors in some people's decision to start selling sex. Yeah, and it feels really clear cut, particularly with drugs, for example, that. Um, yeah, this kind of the, the figure of the person pushed into prostitution through need to pay for drugs like crops up so often and kind of so graphically in a lot of anti-prostitution um, advocacy, and yet the solution never seems to be just like give this person the drug that sh the drugs that she needs currently, and like maybe also like she'll accept other kinds of healthcare or other kinds of support down the line. Um, but it's always about criminalisation, trying to take something away from people rather than thinking, like, what resources does this person need now and where can we go from that? How can we build from that? You know, criminalisation is about what you can take from people mm. rather than what you can give to them. Yeah, well, I guess that's been really played out in the last few weeks in Leeds and the managed zone in Leeds. So um, if, I'm not sure if you all know about this as a single um, legalised prostitution zone in Leeds where it's women are able, sex workers are able to solicit without being arrested. Um, and there's been a big clampdown on that. There's a council meeting. It's going to be possibly closed down. And the group who are behind that are called Save Our Eyes, which is so revealing of what the priorities are of, you know, to take this nuisance away out of sight. And that feels very similar, that we're not that this legalised zone was ideal, but, like, even when these tiny steps are made, it's so unpalatable for people to yeah. deal with on that yeah I, I, something like struck me a lot of the discussion about this leeds managed zone um potentially getting axed uh has brought to the fore a lot of stories from residents of that area who feel that they now are being harassed in in and around the zone and they're being treated like 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 whores um there was one uh, woman who spoke about the fact that her daughter was like approached um you know, in public and, and, and spoken to in a really derogatory fashion. And, like, the, the subtext of all of these stories is, like, you know, we can't allow this because then we'll be treated like whores. And it's like, well, why don't we address <laughs> the, the factors that allow anyone to be treated that way? Because if we have a, a society that sees sex work as work and sex workers as workers, um, then they'll be treated fairly and people wouldn't mind being treated like us. You know, it's, it's really telling that to be treated like a whore is, like, the worst thing for many people, but they don't examine like what what are the factors that influence that treatment for sex workers themselves. Yeah, why should whores be treated like whores? Yeah, right. It's, yeah. it's yeah. annoying. 
I wonder if you want to talk a bit about the role of cultural feminists in really um, propagating this and that some of the most misogynist language about sex workers comes from so-called feminists. Quite unbelievable. I mean, it matches any awful punter review board. And I know you've written about you that. You've got a, a quote on there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd even want to read it out because this has been recorded yeah. for my mum and it's so vile, <laughs> some of the stuff they say <laughs> on Mumsnet. Yeah. Yeah, you probably know it off by heart. You've had to read it so <laughs> yeah. many times. Go on. Yeah, Mumsnet is really my speciality. Oh, yeah, let's hear the Mumsnet. <laughs> the Daily Mail archives are yours. Yeah. yeah. Let's hear the Mumsnet. Oh, I'm not sure I know them by heart, but I mean, it's all the like, um, you whores, you pander to men, you let them jizz on your face. <laughs> You, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, that kind of, like, really... Cum dumpster. Yeah, like, that kind of school, school playground ugliness mm. that just dismisses sex workers really completely bad. from conversations. Yeah. And, like, it makes me cringe because, like, you know, if, if... I think if your feminism includes the kind of language that if it were spoken by a man would be roundly dismissed as horrible misogyny, but you're saying it as a feminist... It's, it's not feminism. Yeah, I mean, they love to say, like, this is what men think about you, um, which really reminds me of, like, schoolyard bullying, where it's like you get called a slag, and then you're like, well, that's because that's what the boys are saying about you. Mm. Um, like, it's really grim. And it's not... They're not just reporting what men are saying about us. They are producing this content themselves. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, some of the key quotes that have gone down in our like history of terrible things are definitely by women orifices. Yeah, our history of so. terrible things. <laughs> <laughs> we have a long That's history. That's all of history. Terrible surely. things. There was an <laughs> exhibition, I think, a feminist group um, had an exhibition where they um, pasted onto the wall um, these these quotes from a, a client review board, like a punter um, website, where clients discuss what it's like buying sex. It's like it's a very sad place to be on the internet, but, you know, <laughs> whatever they need to do to kill their time. Um, and some of these reviews um, are really important to sex workers. You get reviews and it helps you find extra business. It's, it's like, possibly unpleasant for some sex workers to be reviewed, but a lot of people see it as just a necessary thing they have to deal with. Other people hate it with a passion and would like to see the review boards disappear. You know, no one, no one agrees. But what is really disgusting is that this feminist group took those reviews mm -hmm. and made art out of them. And the idea of this art was to demonstrate how disgusting the language is that is used to describe sex workers. And I don't know why it didn't make sense to them that by reproducing that language in art, they were themselves participating in that, mm. in that narrative and that discussion. They didn't have the consent of the sex workers who were being reviewed. <laughs> Um, the, these horrible, like, misogynist um, stories that were being repeated in the name of feminism, and it was just like, well, what are you doing? Like, it's, it makes sense, because it's exactly the same impulse, right? Like, loads of anti-prostitution feminism is really obviously about titillation, it's about this kind of libidinal sense of self, and that's the exact same thing that those men are getting when they're, like, writing horrible reviews about about sex workers. Yeah. They're not, They're not. you know, I guess the horrible review implies that they didn't enjoy the experience, but they're definitely, like, enjoying, enjoying writing the review. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the exact And that's part of the se their sexual experience is being, like, d really viciously misogynist and objectifying in the review afterwards. And, like, you know, we, as sex workers, could potentially one day lead a discussion on how abhorrent that is, and we could problematise it, we could critique it till the, till the cows come home. But ultimately, the way that clients talk about us in reviews is... Not is is only directly relevant to the prostitution debate. If we want to talk about how 
you know, policy might affect us in, in fighting that. But it's just like a complete distraction when feminists want to do that. They want to go to the they want to go to clients, they want to focus their discussion on clients and the men who pay for sex. And whenever that happens, we just get completely drowned out. Like sex workers' voices just drift into the background. Also, the other thing is that I always think when this comes up is that like criminalization fosters a really intense review culture because in the US where obviously both sides of the transaction are criminalized having reviews proves that you're not a cop doing a sting um, so that means that the US has a much more substantial review culture than like other countries that have less criminalization for example so like you know you can you can also these kinds of cultures or encourage them or diminish them through policy but that's not um, really of interest to people who want to use these reviews as a kind of reason to talk about their own womanhood and to kind of rub their thighs with disgust about like how abject sex workers are. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I wanted to read another paragraph related to this, um, which is, yeah, where you're talking again about how castle feminists talk about sex workers and how similar it is to the way abusers talk about sex workers. So. Um, so this is a quote from on a feminist website. A man paying a woman for sex does so on the premise that he can do what he likes with her body in the time that he's purchased it. So then a quote from your book. Um, that it can be claimed about sex workers shows how deep the belief goes that women who sell sex give up all bodily boundaries. It's a belief shared and mutually reinforced by those who assault us and those who imagine us themselves our defenders. So I'm thinking about that in terms of the Me Too movement and how it's felt to both of you watching that conversation evolve while there are feminists who I'm sure have participated <coughs> in the Me Too conversation are also, you know, joining in with this sort of talk about sex workers. Yeah, I think there might have been a time, not now, but like in the past, where a Hollywood actress would have stood up to say, I was, um, I was molested in my trailer by the director after we filmed this scene. And there might have been some people who felt like, well, that's Hollywood, baby. You know, like you just, you know, that's why the Me Too movement took such a long time to happen because for a long time we've been still entrenched in these ideas that like if you go to LA and you want to be a star, that's just what you have to deal with. And now our ideas are evolving and people are able to see that even if you filmed a sex scene, you are, as an actress, not obliged to continue that sexual interaction with your co star or your director and that there is a difference between the performance you do and when you're outside that performance. And people have, they're getting to have like a much more fine understanding of the, the nuances there. And people just haven't got there with sex work yet. This idea that like a client pays us and we just become like um, an inanimate object for an hour is, it can only be fostered by sex workers being a complete mystery and nobody really knowing us or knowing what we're like. So I think maybe with more visibility and more of a platform to talk about our experiences, non-sex workers would have more of an idea of how it actually works, you know? It's, mm. It doesn't actually transpire that, you know, we are, quote-unquote, unrapeable, yeah. um, which is, you know, the yeah. idea behind what the yeah. quote you just read out. Yeah, um, obviously, like, it's really painful, and I've definitely seen... Um, there was an article in The Times or The Sunday Times a while ago that was kind of sneering at millennial women, um, saying... Uh, on the one hand, it was like calling millennial women sort of slags um, <laughs> uh, who love to wear short skirts. Uh, but it was also saying, since you all love the sex industry so much, like how dare you, um, you know, ever talk about experiencing sexual violence? 
um, which is obviously like profoundly gross in innumerable ways. And it's depressing to see um, yeah, conversations about sexual violence kind of weaponized against sex workers so transparently and so violently. Um, I mean, Julie Bindle once um, tweeted at a collective, a sex worker group called Survivors for Decrim to tell them that in actual fact, they shouldn't use the term survivors to describe themselves um, because you're not a survivor of sexual violence if you continue to be a prostitute. As if the, as if the, uh, you know, the self, you know, if you self-identify as a survivor, you can only do so if you've kind of like stopped, moved on, and repented. Like if you continue to actively be a prostitute, then you continue in colluding, like with patriarchy. So you can't say you've survived violence, which is just like. Just mind-boggling, really, and, yeah. and very cruel. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the wider Me Too movement in general is struggling a little bit with like um, whether it is kind of carceral or abolitionist in terms of its attitude to policing, um, which is sort of interesting to watch. Um, and obviously, it has strands of both. Um, yeah, I don't know. I've <laughs> run out of. There. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of what you were saying about um, people like Julie Bindle being very dismissive of sex worker rights and how you feel about that. I mean, I know in your book you acknowledge privilege a lot and obviously here we are three white cis women sitting on stage and what, how you feel about that, about how we can make other voices heard and also about the people who, the tiny handful of people who are able to speak out. I mean, I think there are... 80,000 sex workers in the UK, is that the number? And, and of that number, I mean, there's probably, you count on one hand the number of people who feel able to, like, stand up and put face and a name to it. It's that stigmatised, but when, you, when anyone who does is then dismissed as being too privileged to speak. So how have you personally encountered that? Yeah, I think the, the accusation that um, a particular sex worker is not a good candidate to represent sex workers because they're too privileged almost never comes with any analysis of like why it might be that less privileged sex workers don't speak and haven't come forward. Um, and if sex work was decriminalised, we'd see a lot more people coming forward because they wouldn't have um, as much fear. But, you know, with, with immigration law unchanged, you'd never really be hearing from undocumented migrant sex workers. It's just, it's incredibly difficult to, to speak out. Um, yeah. I mean, I think one of, one of the things we say in the book is that like this this question of kind of representativeness becomes recursive. So um, uh, there's this kind of idea that by definition, if you are audible, you are too privileged to be worth hearing from, um, which obviously, yeah, becomes very rapidly becomes recursive. You have to be silent, and then when you speak, you're not representative. <laughs> right, and like also the question of whether or not you're representative um, changes depending on what your politics are. So people who uh, advocate for criminalisation having left uh, the sex industry are not interrogated really about their level of um, quote-unquote privilege within the sex industry. They're considered um, legitimate, like, just through having stopped being a sex worker and then, you know, they're talking about their experiences. And they're, they're very rarely apart from by sex workers, ever challenged on their right to say that stuff. But we're constantly asked to prove our right to be in these spaces and in these conversations. And I guess also, like, the other important thing to say about this is that it's a way of um, distracting people from the content of whatever we're saying. So, like, if, 
if you're saying um, something like in Sweden, um, sex workers are routinely evicted by the police, including when they are reporting rape to the police. Uh, like really often the response will be, well, you're too privileged, like I don't want to hear that. And it's like, well, okay, regardless of my privilege level, I've like put some content out into the world. Like, do you have anything to say about that? Like, is that, you know, um, and it just, that, that just is so like neatly sidestepped um, and it becomes this endless kind of red herring of like, who can be representative, which is obviously no one person can be representative of anything. It's a ridiculous request to make of anyone. Yeah. We've had 45 minutes as well, I think, by the way. Okay. Right. <laughs> went so fast. <laughs> Try on. Wearing a watch. Okay, so questions from the audience. Has anyone got a question for Gina or Molly? We'll take three at a time. Okay. I hope this will be a nice light one to start us off. What's the nicest or most fulfilling piece of feedback or review that you've had so far? Aww, that's nice. That one. is nice. It's very self-indulgent for us. We're <laughs> <laughs> um, we we going to do three at a time. Yeah, yeah we've got a system. We, we're going to take three, and then we'll answer them all together. It allows us to cut out the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. Um, thank you so much for that. That was so awesome. Um, so I don't know what the sex education system's like in the UK, but I'm wondering what <laughs> um, non-existent. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm from Canada, and it's pretty pathetic. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the role that sex education can have in destigmatizing de sex work, or just in general um, helping people understand what sex work is. Um, so, sex work and sex education—the role that those two can play together. Hi, um, I'm halfway or more than halfway reading the book, and it's amazing. And I think you have done so much for allies to be able to have these conversations with, especially those of us in the feminist movement who have friends and people that, you know, we have a lot of discussions about who are on the other side. And I think this book will be invaluable for that, to help us have those conversations. I just wanted to ask if you can expand a little bit of your analysis on borders, because I found that really helpful and really brave, I think, to look at, um, to basically look at the issue of trafficking and from a borders perspective, because I think that's one of the things that we're afraid to say, looking at violence of people who are trafficking to the sex industry, but where the root cause of violence really comes from. Thank you. It's funny, like, I think that the nicest piece of feedback, or maybe the one that's just sticking in my memory now that we've had was just before uh, we came on stage and we did an interview with someone who felt that the, the most punchy, like, bottom line that they got out of the book, um, like, the biggest takeaway um, was a kind of, like, really ferocious um, advance towards border abolition, um, which was really good to hear, wasn't it? Because we were hoping that that would be, be something that stood out from the book. Um, and we didn't want to shy away from talking about trafficking, um, which is something... It's, I, I sometimes feel like the conversation about trafficking is like a sore ankle that sex workers have learned to kind of stop walking on by going, sex work and trafficking are two completely distinct things. Um, in other words, like, not our problem. And uh, we didn't want to do that. Um, 
So yeah, right. But we equally didn't want to be like the police and immigration police are good <laughs> because clearly they're not. Um, so I feel yeah, I feel happy that we um, had the kind of space um, to talk about um, what we call trafficking as basically a function of um, of borders and immigration control. Um, and other, and you know, the economic structures that um, that cause people to want to move to work, and um, a lot of that is like really needs to be demystified for people who live who've lived in the UK all their lives and have no kind of conception of the violence of a border, who maybe don't even think about borders because most of their life they've just travelled within the EU and it's been a breeze. Um, you know, hopefully people like that will get some new thinking out of that part of the book. Yeah. Um, and the question about sex ed is, is an interesting one, isn't it? I don't, it's, we haven't ha not had that kind of question mm. yet. Uh, I mean, obviously sex ed in the UK is like completely abysmal. It's so abysmal, yeah. I can't even, I can't even imagine a sex ed that would have taught me about um, my own personal sexuality, let alone, let alone sex workers. But I can sort of imagine, I can imagine a, a, a sex ed or, or one of, what, what was it called, like P, PG? PHSE? Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine that sort of like uh, curriculum, including, uh, you know, talks about sex workers, but man, that is a completely tomorrow discussion as far yeah. as... Sex. I mean, we're both the children of Section 28, aren't we? We were yeah. talking about this a while ago. I'm broken for life, I don't know. <laughs> Section 28 ruined me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a kind of discussion. Section 28 is a law that um, I see some people shaking their heads like, what? Uh, it basically, uh, for most of my adolescence, childhood and adolescence, it was uh, effectively illegal or very difficult for schools to talk about uh, homosexuality because of uh, they'd be seen as promoting um, promoting an alternative lifestyle. In reality, schools could have done, but they mostly erred on the side of, the, of caution and just completely axed lots of sex ed from their schools and anything that discussed being gay or queer. It which meant that schools couldn't really or didn't really intervene to stop homophobic bullying and it fostered a whole culture of like just not talking about like LGBT identities at all that I think continued on long after Section 28's repeal in which what? Which was like in early 90s? No, late 90s or early 2000s. Yeah. But um, it's sort of hard for me to imagine a better sex ed system because of that. Um, but it's, that's the kind of, I, f I feel like that question is a good example of the kind of conversation that sex workers would be really well placed to be, they'd be well placed to have those conversations and, and lead those discussions about sex, what the sex industry is, you know, what capitalism and sex do when they mix together. But we're so busy having these bloody conversations about like much more intense things like safety and, and violence that we don't, we don't get to do that stuff and that stuff will remain completely untouched probably um, for a long while yet, which is a shame. I mean, some sex workers are doing a lot of work on sex ed, actually. I shouldn't dismiss that. But yeah. It's, it's like con consent culture is, you know, there's a lot of great contributions by sex workers made to consent culture and sex ed, and especially in, uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s, and when blogging became a thing and sex bloggers and all that stuff. But it's not, it's not really our bag, per mm. se. Okay, any more questions? Uh, 
Uh, hi, thanks for a very enlightening conversation. Um, in the broader economy, uh, we, there's a conversation about workers' rights and the gig economy, and whether the gig economy is, is good or bad for, for workers. Um, and you might, or sex work could be perceived as a, a kind of classic example of the gig economy. So do you think there are structures uh, from other sectors like let's say, secure employment contracts and so on that you see as being valuable for sex workers or, or equally knowledge and experience that you have from your work that could uh, be valuable to people in other industries? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yes. He's over there. Hi. Uh, um, I was just wondering, because I recently actually perhaps naively wrote to my uh, MP and uh, about decrypt. I know it's not the answer to everything. And she sent a rather long reply, but at the end, it was sort of saying that she really basically only cared about trafficked women. And she described other sex workers as almost in a way that they would be collateral damage if there was... And she ended it with the three words, so be it. I wonder how you feel about being so be it. Can you send so us that email? That sounds like a classic text. How, how does that make you feel? So be it. So be it. So I appreciate the irony of this question, but if there was one thing that you hope people take away from reading this book and this experience in this dialogue, what would that be? Music coming in. It's just like <laughs> mood music. Um, should we go for the gig economy question first? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's always good to get a chance to talk about that because it's so exciting what's happening at the moment with um, the conversation in the UK about uh, the experiences of workers in the gig economy, people who work for Deliveroo, um, you know, who, who else was... Uber Eats. Uber. Uber Eats, yeah, TGI Friday workers, um, uh, fast food workers, um, people who are really struggling um, with bad working conditions that are getting worse as they get more and more constrained and their rights are take, have been taken away from them by, you know, through structures like zero-hour contracts and... Um, the sex industry has so much in, con in, in common with that because the sex industry has become very, um, you know, there's a lot of independent work now. Um, a lot of sex workers just work for themselves. They sell sex online. Um, it's very precarious. And if you work in a brothel or in a strip club, you usually pay to work there. Um, so you are a self-employed contractor with absolutely none of the security um, that being employed has, all of the precarity, and none of the perks of being self-employed either because you still get fined by your boss. You can still get sacked on the spot. Your, your movements are controlled. You, like, your, your boss dictates when your shift starts and finishes. And that happens in quite a lot of industries now. Um, it's particularly pernicious in sex work because um, it's criminalised. But um, strippers are starting to unionise. Um, right, we're like... Um, both me and Gina are involved with um, the campaign UK Decrim Now, uh, and part of that is um, a effort to organise strippers through the um, grassroots union uh, United Voices of the World, which is um, quite exciting um, because obviously uh, the conditions in strip clubs are really shit um, and have been since forever, and in general attempts to kind of clamp down on licenses make them worse because management passed on extra costs to the dancers. Um, what results in such like high house fees. Yeah. Um, and that's like a direct result of policy shift in the last... 15 um, years? 
Yeah, I'm not quite sure when, that when there was a law change that suddenly made strip clubs incredibly expensive places for strippers to work in. Um, and that's also seen a lot of closures. There's a lot less places to work now. Right. And then, so for ages, uh, whenever sexual entertainment venue licensing um, stuff comes up at local councils, uh, you know, you have like anti, anti-sex industry campaigners on the one hand saying that the venue should close. And then you have strippers on the other hand saying that, you know, this is our workplace and we want it to stay open. And that sort of makes it very easy to characterise strippers as just supporting strip clubs in general. Um, so it's really good to be able to kind of move, to see the conversation moving on to strippers, um, like leading with demands about how they want their workplaces to be improved and to be made less exploitative. Yeah, and like to have a union making space for them to have that conversation and giving them, um, you know, that that space to breathe, because it's a bit like the, the sex work conversation in general, when everything is so fraught and all people are doing is like hurling arguments across the divide, like, no, the sex industry is bad, we should get rid of it. No, please leave the sex industry as it is because we need to work in it. You know, don't get to actually have discussions about how things can be improved. And with strippers, it's a good example of how there are some very specific demands strippers have that would make their working conditions better in strip clubs. And feminists should be listening to that. Right, and it's also good because then there's loads of room for solidarity between different workers in the union. So the strippers like held a bunch of um, parties to raise money for a strike fund for other workers in the union. Um, and as a result, I feel like um, there's just yeah, there's a really great like bonds of solidarity between strippers and other workers in the United Voice of the World union, which is really exciting. Yeah, and it, it's <laughs> when I was at the Labour Party conference recently, I was like flyering outside trying to um, get people interested in the decriminal campaign, um, which is, you know, that, I mean, it's, it's got a love, they had lovely leaflets, but it's, there's something l slightly dry about just a campaign, but on top of it was a smaller flyer for the stripper union. And so I was just putting them together and going, we're unionizing strippers, <laughs> um, which is exciting. And, you know, like yeah, pe people, people loved it. Yeah, people, people um, hopefully will start paying attention. And maybe next it would be prostitutes, but obviously much harder to organize criminalized workers most people who work in a shitty brothel are not going to want to um, jeopardise their job or potentially incur the wrath of the bad boss that they work for. Um, the worse your conditions are, the more you should probably be organising, but the less likely you are to be able to, um, to do it. God, we really have run along with this question. We're obviously <laughs> very enthusiastic about it. Um, what were the other ones? So... <laughs> Yeah, I think it's this so like it's really hard to like to to identify a, a bottom line because oh, there's yeah. there's so many like I had a phrase immediately come to mind. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Cops bad. Cops are bad. <laughs> yeah, it could be that, but then you wake up tomorrow morning and it's no, something different, isn't capitalism it? Capitalism bad. Yeah, yeah, borders are bad. <laughs> if there's a lot of stuff that's bad. <laughs> it might be the bottom line. It's just there's a lot of bad shit in the world. Um, I think another bottom line that I'd really want people to take away from it is that sex workers are not collateral mm. in some wider war against the sex industry and patriarchy in general. Sex workers are real people experiencing harms. Um, you know, you can't just vanish them away because you're focusing on a group of, a smaller group of real victims that you've largely imagined the existence of. Um, we've seen that kind of like so be it argument in many forms when we were researching the book. Um, and it's really, really... Uh, 
Yeah. It's really difficult to see, isn't Politicians it? are very open to actually saying what should be the quiet part loud when it comes to sex worker rights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're very keen to tell you that uh, they don't give a fuck about prostitutes. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in Sweden, there's a lot of, there was some absolute gold that came out of um, some Swedish government reports and quotes from Swedish politicians um, that I don't know if it's just like a Swedish like mode of speaking very frankly, but some of them literally articulated that making the, making the sex industry more dangerous in the short term for some people is worth it in the long term if we can get rid of the whole thing. And that's basically saying that like the dangers that someone experiences on a nightly basis is uh, a good, it's fair trade-off. And it's not a fair trade-off. It's like people are suffering. That's the whole point of having any kind of politics about sex work is caring about people's everyday suffering. Um, you know, and that's, that's what our politics are about. It's about um, people's everyday realities, not a kind of lofty theoretical set of ideas about like what prostitution means for people like, um, you know, people who have an abstract relationship to it, like female politicians, you know, it's, it's not just an idea. For some people, it's reality. It's every day. And that needs to constantly be, like, people need to be constantly reminded of that. Probably because sex workers are so invisible. Lots of people would claim that they don't know one and that they've never, they've never really encountered what sex work is up close. Right, so. and it's such a richly symbolic terrain. It's so full of metaphor about womanhood and masculinity and money and power. Yeah. And people are desperate to, like, make it into those kinds of abstractions. Yeah, I think there's a quote in the book from a second wave feminist, I can't remember which one, but never mind crediting her for this in this moment. And she says something like, the prostitute is the ultimate um, stigmatized, degraded woman, and she can stand in for all the abuse that we are now starting to articulate for ourselves as women. It's like, no, we can't. <laughs> we, can we can stand for ourselves to talk about how we experience things that we can't just be kind of like, picked up by you and used as a symbol. Um, uh, and that is, it's an incredibly objectifying thing to do, ironically. Right, and there's this like bizarre one-way traffic where the prostitute is kind of legitimate as this symbol for all other women to talk about their experiences under patriarchy. Yeah. But like I was treated like a whore. Right, but the experiences of the prostitute are not of interest to like the general feminist movement really. They're not, you know, when we try and talk about the experiences of the prostitute, we're treated as raising some kind of like niche issue, like we're obsessed with like weird detail. Mm. Um, or like we're, we're stealing a word like survivors to talk about our experiences. So it's interesting how we're allowed to be a symbol for them, but feminist ideas and languages uh, and language spoken is not for us to use. You know, it's, it's not a two-way street, and that's very annoying. <laughs> but do forward that email. I, I yeah, genuinely would love to read that. I'd love to read it. We, sadly, we're going to have to end here, but I feel like that was a really good final <laughs> end of the takeaway from the book. So thank you, everyone, and applause for Juno and Molly. <laughs> <laughs>